Welcome to the All for Literacy podcast, hosted by Dr. Liz Brooke, welcoming established and emerging voices in literacy education and the science of reading. Explore with us the connections between literacy research, educators' knowledge and skills, and the implementation into classroom instruction. They don't remember the worksheets. They don't remember the spelling tests. They don't remember the math homework. They remember diving into passion-based projects and using technology to kind of guide that. So I kind of want to write back to that lady at some point, find her now 20 years later and be like, well, technology wasn't (laughs) so bad, it turns out. You just heard Carl Hooker, an educator and administrator for 21 years with a unique blend of education and technology experience. Today, Mr. Hooker brings his passion for thoughtful integration of technology in the classroom to all for literacy. Here's your host, Liz Brooke. Thank you for joining us today as we speak with Carl Hooker, who is an educator and advocate for thoughtful and technology integration. So welcome, Carl, and thank you for spending some time with us today. Thank you, Liz. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Sure, sure. And I always love to start with a little bit of your origin story and how you got your start in education and what brought you to where you are today. And I love telling this part of the story because I am not the typical educator in the sense that I didn't go right out of high school. Like I wanted to be a teacher. I actually started out as an engineering major, discovered quickly that that was not uh, what brought passion to my life. And uh, so I switched to elementary and early childhood education, um, which is the almost the exact opposite of civil engineering in many ways. (laughs) Um, And so that got me, I I got real excited about that. I got started out uh, teaching uh, first grade for a number of years and just for me, the big thing was was like, you know, as teachers, we don't get paid a lot of money, but to see that kind of light bulb moment, and it happened so much in first grade when that struggling reader, it just took them maybe some kids, it was within a month. I remember one particular student, I think it was May, almost at the end of the school year, where finally the light bulb clicked. And I was really worried. I was like, this is going to be that one kid that I never get to read. Um, so I love that challenge. And, that, and those are things that you can't ever quantify in dollar amounts. I mean, it's something that I just had pride in, in in that role. So yeah, started out as a first grade teacher and then moved my way. Kind of, I thought this computer thing isn't going anywhere. The internet seemed to be like a real thing that maybe wasn't going to go away. So I kept kind of working in that field, became a computer lab instructor for pre-K to five, uh, pre-K to fifth grade students. And then um, kind of worked my way up, became an administrator and eventually director of innovation and digital learning at a district here in Austin, Texas for a number of years. So that's kind of in a minute or so where I've been. Yeah. And it's funny because I also started as a first grade teacher and I explained that similar way that light bulb moment is really, you know, as they used to say in those commercials, it's priceless, right? Like, so it's not so much about the salary, although I do think we should pay teachers way more than we do. Well, yes. But yeah, seeing the light bulb come on. And as you said about the student, you know, it wasn't until May that he or she learned to read. And for me, part of my story that I've been more willing to share these days because I realized I wasn't alone was that I didn't get the training in how to teach those kids to read. Right. And as a first grade teacher, that's pretty important. So it wasn't until I went back to school and became a speech language pathologist and reading specialist that that's when I I learned what I needed to know. And I actually went back to the same elementary school where I had taught and I was their speech path. So it was kind of a great full circle moment, if you will. And then 
was able to go on and work at Florida Center for Reading Research and Mass General Hospital and other places and really just always remembering back to that classroom experience and how do we empower teachers so that they can reach more of their students and have that light bulb moment, if you will. For me, it was like a guilt. Those first couple of years of teaching first grade, I'm like, man, by about the third year, I really figured it out. But like you, I didn't really have the necessary training when it came to these things. And technology back then was still fairly new. Um, We did use it quite a bit. But it was somewhere around that same time of teaching maybe three or four years in that the other light bulb kind of struck with me. And that was the idea that if I give kids the opportunity to be independent, even six years old, and to explore something they're passionate about, and I don't put a ceiling on them, and technology seemed to be kind of the mechanism or the vehicle with which to do that, it, it was just impactful to me. And I had, I remember I had a former first grade teacher who was an administrator in my school at one point and came in and we were doing this project where each kid was kind of diving into their own interest-based topic, you know, whether it was... Harry Potter or basketball or tornadoes or something. And I had each of them doing research on it and they're going to write papers on it. Again, this is six years old. We had these little old iBook uh, laptops, these little white Mac (laughs) iBooks that were very clunky, but they worked. And um, she came in and she, after she left, she gave me a very poor evaluation. And I remember going, what, what was that about? She says, you're putting too much on them. There's no way they can do everything that you're telling them to do. And and she goes, I've taught first grade for a number of years, and that's not what you're supposed to do. And I and I remember that struck with me. And I was like, okay, interesting. I appreciate your perspective on this. I disagree, and here's why. And then to flash forward, let's say 20 years, because that's how long it's been now, I think almost 20 years. Those kids are now 25, 26 years old. They reach out to me now on social media and Facebook. And guess what they all oh, say? Wow. They remember yeah. all of those projects. And again, going back to that, it's not about the income, it's about the outcome or whatever. I, to me, that was such a thing to say, okay, it's validated the fact that I was getting them ready for lifelong things. They remember all of those things. They don't remember the worksheets. They don't remember the spelling tests. They don't remember the math homework. They remember diving into passion-based projects and using technology to kind of guide that. So I kind of want to write back to that lady at some point, find her now 20 years later and be like, well, technology wasn't (laughs) so bad, it turns out. But, you know, it's always in transition. It is different. But you you bring up a really good point, the passion part and being able to differentiate, right, for your students. So let's say even if you have a relatively small class of 20 students, if you're very lucky, but most teachers have, you know, 25, 30 students. And I know you've talked about this before in some of your writings. And so when you think about technology and you think about the ability to identify, personalize, or differentiate instruction. Can you talk a little bit about how technology can not only help to differentiate that instruction, but also to help aggregate data that might be, you know, a powerful tool for teachers? Like, how are you currently seeing that happen in schools? Yeah, and there's kind of two parts to that question. So on the one angle, when you're talking about the aggregation of data and using tools that help differentiate, tools that are that quickly gather snapshots of what the student is learning. I'm thinking about these are more gamified or maybe it's more of a like let's have an extension or remediation. 
you know, having the opportunity in a class of, like you say, 24, 25 kids to say, all right, you five for 15 minutes, you're going to do a quick rotation, but I want you to get on this platform. And I want you to engage in the platform. I want you to try your best at it, see how you're doing. Meanwhile, I'm pulling a small group of five students to do maybe a small group reading instruction or some direct teach. There's maybe three or four other kids that are working on different projects, some with technology, some without. Again, just kind of giving them the opportunity to reteach. And so part of that classroom rotation, then every student goes to those centers and I'm able to see quickly, okay, how are the students doing on independent work? How are they doing without me just telling them, do this, then do that? Are they actually, do they actually get the concepts of what I'm teaching? And this is something, again, early in my teaching career, I didn't have access to these kind of tools. I mean, they've really come about in the last 10 or 12 years, but the data part of it is amazing. And now when you talk about AI in the back end, not generative AI, the new stuff that ChatGPT, which I'm sure we'll get into, more about the back end of how artificial intelligence can now differentiate even for kids. So I'll give you an example. One of my daughters, severely dyslexic, and she's a fifth grader now, and she's always struggled with reading, especially with writing. But the ability now to where she can take adaptive tests where it'll say like, okay, we can tell by the test itself can adjust based on her feedback and how she's doing. And, and it can actually then bring forward prompts that are a little more in line with where she's at, but still continue to push her a little bit. You know, in the olden days, quote unquote, it was like everyone took the exact same test with the exact right, same, same questions. Same 30 items, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, and now you can even adjust the font to have weighted, dyslexic weighted font so she can actually read it a little bit better when you talk about adaptive technologies. So a potential for her, you know, to have an opportunity that maybe she didn't or wouldn't have had without technology as a resource or as an assistant is just tremendous. And I think about um, how lucky it is that, first of all, that she's in this time period in our lives. But I can also imagine that in the future, it's just going to be even better for those kids where it's not going to be something that's a hindrance. It's just going to empower them more. Yeah, absolutely. Like you said, not giving the same 30 items to every student. But in schools, how do you feel that technology has been accepted? Because there's a lot of folks who say, Teachers teach reading, not technology. So how have you seen either a school that has embraced technology in a really powerful way? Or what do you say to skeptics who say, you know, technology doesn't teach reading, teachers do? Well, yeah. And there is a lot. I mean, let's be fair, Liz, there's a lot of skeptics out there with with anything new and anything different. And technology is definitely new and different and potentially disruptive, which could be good or disruptive in a bad way. And so for the skeptics, a lot of what I talk about, even when I talk to teachers when I work in classrooms, and I, I do currently, I travel across the country consulting with districts, I work in classrooms, I get in classrooms and, and use the technology with the students to talk to them about the balance of everything. First of all, just sticking a kid on a computer and letting them learn how to read, that is not the answer. We know that teachers are still, they're the ones that are creating the experiences in the classroom. However, the technology can be an assistant for that. It's not gonna replace the teacher. I, I did see a funny website that was called willrobotstakemyjob.com. And uh, and you can actually, this is a true website where you can <laughs> type in a job of any type. And in the next 20 years, the AI basically spits out and says, this is the chance or percentage likelihood that your job will be replaced by a robot or a computer. And it's funny because the first thing I type in always is teachers. And uh, teachers are like, oh, what is it? Like 50%, 75%? No, it's point. 95% likelihood that in the next 20 years will be replaced by technology. We are totally safe in terms of that. However, we should still utilize it strongly. By the way, just side note, there's right. lots of jobs. You can probably imagine some other jobs that may be getting replaced in the next 20 years, like 
you know, cashiers and actually truck drivers, things like that. But then having that conversation with teachers to say, okay, let's have some comfort in knowing that you're still kind of the sole part of this. And I think that's where some of the struggle is. It's a it's a giving up of a little bit of a control. And we all struggle with it. I have struggled with it too as a teacher where you say, okay, I'm going to let you kind of go off into this program or this app that I'm not quite comfortable with myself, but I'm going to let you as a student try it. And of course, we know students quickly pick things up and they're actually, in a lot of ways, they can pick it up faster than we can. So our job then at that point is to say, okay, I want you to use this tool to kind of demonstrate you understand the topic, but here are the parameters of which you're going to do that. I'm like, oh, this is how you show mastery. And so then I think as a teacher, our job changes a little bit. We're no longer just directly telling them what to do. It's more like we're creating these environments for them to experience different things, using technology, not using technology, but again, with the sole purpose of them being able to demonstrate that they understand the concept, understand the learning. And in the terms of reading, I mean, it's a mixed bag. I'll say this. I mean, there's a lot of research that talks about long form reading isn't actually great to do on a screen for a long period of time. Right. So I always talk about short form reading, meaning like, you know, an article or a blog post or something like that is fine. But if you're reading novels and and this isn't again for everybody, this is a very general statement. But generally, I, I try to encourage kids to pick up an actual physical book because I think that's also good for their brain and also good for their eyes. But it's a mix of those two things. If you can have a little bit of both, I'll give you another example. Again, my daughter, the dyslexic daughter, she's into the series called The Wings of Fire, which is a graphic novel. And that's what tied her into reading. Well, now um, she has a platform that will actually read, help her read the novels because now she's a kind of a, a progressed past the graphic novels and going straight into novels where it's just words. And again, it gives me chills to talk about this as a father because I never thought she'd be the kind of kid that liked reading. She loves it now. And it's because she's had these tools and assistive technology tools to get her excited about these things and having it read along with her as she reads a physical book, but she can hear it reading with her gives her that confidence where sometimes she just turns it off and reads it herself. But I can't imagine that she would be anywhere near that at this point in her educational career if we didn't have those assistive tools. Yeah. And that's such a wonderful story about your daughter. I think it it is true, again, meeting the students where they are and supporting them and providing that scaffolding that maybe the teacher can't get to all 30 students to provide that scaffolding or that support. And so we've talked a little bit about how technology supports students. Have you thought about technology and how it supports teachers in their own professional learning or their own professional development? And what have you seen different ways to incorporate technology to support teachers in their own learning? Yeah, the biggest for me is the ability to quickly connect. I think when you think about technology and also just professional learning networks in general, it was for me when I first got started in my administrative role, I felt like I was on an island. And a lot of teachers honestly feel that way. They feel like they close their door and like they're in their room and it's them and their kids and that's it. So having the ability to then use technology, using social platforms like Twitter or the one that I created about a year ago called K-12 Leaders, where it's a social platform for us to connect, share ideas and share just kind of like, what do we agree with? What are we, what are we struggling with? What are some of our successes and what are some of our challenges? Having that first step to me is, is just golden as a teacher. And I guess it, in some ways, I wish I had had that when I first started in my career. But now extrapolating on that even more, you know, there's this balance, I feel like as teachers too, where we have to be careful not to always go to whatever the shiny new tech toy is. We can't just say, oh, this looks new and fascinating. Oh, and it's like TikTok. So it must be great because the kids like TikTok. So let's put a bunch of TikTok videos out, right? That said, there is something to be said about how can we use a tool, like a video tool to help students 
not only empower them, but get them to share a little bit about their own personal history and about their own personal narrative and their, where they're coming from as a learner and using that tool to express themselves. That's something, again, we didn't have before necessarily. In the olden days, again, was, you'd write a paper and it would stick on the fridge for you know a month until mom or dad decided to throw it away. Now you can post it out there and have other people share and comment on it, which again, going back to the technology is disruptive, can be good, can be bad, because sometimes we get some comments that we don't necessarily agree with. So teaching the kids that balance is a big part of it. So back to your question about the teachers, though, I do think for me that the early wins that I had when training teachers with technology was let's figure out ways that this tool can make your life a little bit more efficient. I'm not saying easier necessarily more efficient, meaning instead of standing 45 minutes in front of the copy machine, waiting for those copies to come out, maybe you distribute this through some sort of learning management console, or instead of reading with each kid individually, maybe you have them reading and recording a section of something that they're doing. And then you're able to kind of go back and listen to that concept later. So you're able to do two things at once, kind of cloning yourselves in some way. So talking to teachers, especially those that are maybe a little reticent about the use of technology, showing them a couple of ways that it can help them reach all of their learners, Because let's face it, most teachers are in this for the kids. And so if you can make that case to them, they'll be on board with it. So even the hesitated, the teachers that hesitate with technology, they'll say, oh, okay, well, I can, I now I can understand and hear a little bit more about what my students are thinking. I think that's a powerful way to kind of get them on board with it. Yeah, that reminds me of a recently posted article. I think it was by Kevin Martin suggested that an increasing number of these platforms are using what he called classroom orchestration systems to reduce those common classroom tasks, right? From as many as 26 steps to a single voice prompt. So I think that's what you're talking about, right? Measurably reducing the cognitive demands on those busy teachers. So besides the community, which I think you brought up is a great point in not feeling like you're on an island, but do you see this kind of classroom orchestration systems um, as another way to really see tech being a support to teachers. Yeah, I think I love that. By the way, I love that phrase because, you know, learning management system sounds very dry. I like classroom orchestration yes. system. <laughs> that to me is the new the new thing. The CO, we get another acronym in education. We need a COS instead right. of an LMS. COS, yes. <laughs> yeah. um, I think what it comes down to with those tools is I th- I like that concept because for me with students in general, my, my goal has always been as a teacher is I want you to feel comfortable and assertive and empowered in driving your own learning, what you're doing, how you're doing it, what are you creating as an output for that learning, making it about not only the product, but about the process, right? We want it to be a little bit of both. And so using tools that can help that as a teacher, I start to see, okay, so if in the olden days, I had to go through these 17,000 steps or 26 steps, and now I don't need to do that. Maybe now I just create a it used to be called Flipgrid, but now it's Flip, right? Where you record a little snippet of something. You know, in the olden days, that would take a camera, a computer, some software, some editing software, uh, uploading things and posting it somewhere and sending it. Now it's just they join a group, they post their thoughts, they can have a backdrop without a green screen and really talk through some of their thoughts and feedback. And then again, as a teacher, now I see a quick snapshot of what each of those 30 students is thinking and, and I can hear their actual voice into what they're thinking. So The challenge for me as a teacher then becomes like, okay, how can I create more avenues and pathways for students to really be heard and to really empower them to share what they know and what they don't know? Because you can pick up pretty quickly when you listen to the recordings of these kids, like, okay, this student's got it. They've got the concept. They got the objective down. Maybe a couple of kids you'll listen to like, wow, they totally missed the boat on this one. So we need to go back and do some kind of some reteach with them or maybe some one-on-one time. So really, again, when it comes back to technology and leveraging that as a teaching tool, 
let me find a tool that I call an evergreen tool, a creative tool, one that they can design and create and, and share back with me. And there's lots of them out there. I won't list them all, but there are a lot that teachers use. I will say to teachers that are listening to this, go beyond just like Google Slides, because there's more than just Google Slides when it comes to student creative work. But that is definitely kind of the first step for many of them. Right. And I think just like you said, your students reaching out to you years and years later about those types of projects and being able to give our students a different medium to express their ideas or be able to demonstrate their mastery of a knowledge rather than a worksheet or a test. So I think when we think about technology and the dramatic impact it can have on the learning environment, as this podcast is all for literacy, how do you see technology playing a role in this science of reading movement? I mean, uh, to extrapolate a little bit further on what I was saying with my daughter, I think what technology can do in, in a lot of ways for any reader, any reading type is, again, that adaptive use, the ability to have the technology basically create an adaptive reading prompt or an adaptive reading passage that a student can then go through and look at and then assess figure out, did they actually have comprehension of what they read? Because a lot of times kids are just flying through things, checking boxes, but actually to have it then prompt them and say, do you understand what you just read? And what did so-and-so say in the story to make them have, make sure that they're actually comprehending what they're doing before they move along in the passage. So technology can add those little markers in there, those little uh, kind of checkpoints along the way that, again, if we did this as a whole group, let's go back before technology, every student's going to read two sentences from the textbook as we go around the room and all 30 kids, and you're sitting there as a student counting okay i'm four kids away so i've got to read this sentence right you remember like that now yeah. it's now it's uh okay the technology is going to give you this passage that we know is kind of adjusted based on your lexile score or whatever your reading level is and we're going to go ahead and start there and then say okay now here are a couple other options based on your interests so whereas before you're very limited to the classroom library and i had a beautiful library and i still like i said i love the physical books we still have tons of them here in our house but now i can pick and choose based on interest and whatever your reading level is and assign to you a couple of options. Well, as a student, that's so much more empowering to me to say, okay, I'm not going to read the story about a dog that I don't really care about. Instead, I'm going to read a story about a kid who's creating his own robot to go to Mars or uh, a child who's learning how to ride a horse for the first time. Something that really interests them and motivates them. Well, that's motivating to them as a reader. They want to read that story versus giving them very canned text that all 30 kids must read. So now technology allows that other layer of differentiation where you talk about interest and passion, which we talked about earlier. But to me, that's the huge driving factor why I continue to push for the use of technology, especially when it comes to literacy, is giving kids those opportunities to find things they're passionate about and read and enjoy them. Because again, you never know when the light bulb's going to go off. And for me as an early teacher, it was I threw a bunch of stuff and see what sticks. Now we have technology right, that can right. help us with that and uh, and guide kind of us as teachers to then curate more of those lessons for the kids. But at the same time, I'll say, let's make sure that we're also exposing them to all sorts of content. We don't want them just to be like, oh, because you like dragons, every book you're going to read is about dragons. No, that's not the answer either. But it's giving them that opportunity to see some of the things they're interested in and then exposing them to things that maybe they're not sure of or things they haven't learned about or read about before in their life. Right. And coupling not only their interests and their passions, but like you said, adapting it to their appropriate reading ability and the idea of having that more endless library if you have that technology ability and really matching it and helping those students learn and, and thrive and grow through that adaptive branching 
techniques that you can get through technology. So I agree. I think technology and the idea of adaptive technology and and maybe getting back to what you mentioned earlier on about, you know, artificial intelligence, right? We know it's making the news Oh yeah, and its impact on education. There was actually a an episode of last week tonight with John Oliver where they raised the question. Yeah, you should check it out. It was really good question of whether students using AI generated content was considered cheating. I know actually some of the biggest school districts in the country have now actually had conversations about banning. New York City, I know, blocked it a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Yep. Yep. New York City. And probably the most famous one right now, or the one that's being talked about in the most, I think, news locations is chat GPT. Yep. So what are your thoughts about AI and its impact on education, both good and bad, and maybe even specifically about chat GPT? Well, let's start by phrasing this as that there's lots of different AI when we talk about artificial intelligence, because there's the AI that exists like in your phone when you're driving somewhere and it tells you based on the algorithmic data that we're getting, you should probably drive this way instead of this way to avoid traffic, right? <laughs> so that's kind of assistive AI. Um, another assistive AIs would be tools like Alexa or home assistants like that, where you can call out a prompt and then have it respond in the prompt. So I'm going to call out to Alexa to place. I better not say it too loud because she's actually in the room right now. So she might hear me. Um, <laughs> She'll start talking. <laughs> she will start talking and start calling out prompts and then having them responding to those prompts. And so those are, again, very uh, early iterations of AI or automatic grading, things like that. Or we talked about the adaptiveness of testing where you can have adapted tests. Again, amazing uses of AI. But what you're talking about now, the big thing now is all about generative or creative AI, which is the ability to prompt or put in some sort of prompt and AI then creates an output. And the two biggest areas that we're seeing this right now is in art, where you can have a prompt of a panda riding a bike in the middle of New York City with depth of feel. And then all of a sudden, here comes lots of images of different panda bears driving, riding bikes in New York City. I mean, and it, it's amazing how good the art is. It's just, it comes out in within seconds. But then the other one is ChatGPT, which you mentioned, which of course ties into a lot of what we're talking about today with literacy and just reading in general. So being able to create a prompt and then having an output of some sort. Where do I lay on it? I, I kind of equate this to what happened in education around 19... 19- 98 to 2003. And it was right when the search engine was becoming optimized. You know, before we had Google, we had, this is going to date me, but we had things like Dogpile and uh, Alta Vista and you know, Netscape had its own thing. And so again, all these different ways of which you could ask a computer a question and it would spit out answers. There was a lot of movement in education way back then of, of course, we didn't have social media then, but it was like, oh, this is it. This is the end of teaching and learning. Kids are just going to Google search everything and will never need a, a teacher again. Well, this sounds very familiar in the context of what right. we're hearing right now. <laughs> Teachers are like, wait, the kids can just put something in there and then it creates this thing and then it spits it out. We'll never need teachers again. So where I fall with most technology is like, I believe it or not, take a little bit of a skeptic lens whenever I look at it at first. I'm very high tech, but I'm also very much, can this actually move the needle? Can it help students learn? Can it help with where they're going in their future? Um, and I see a, a lot of this generative AI as being something that can and will be a part of their future. We're at the doorstep, the infancy, if you will, of what generative AI is going to be. And in 10 years, we're going to be laughing because ChatGPT will probably be gone. It'll be something else that is just creating things for us. Basically, what it's doing is it's saying instead of you going and Google searching 17 different articles, 
about these topics. I'm going to go ahead and create some of that for you. But then your job is to go in and then reframe it and make it better. My daughter's fourth grade teacher, a different daughter, but she, her fourth grade teacher, the other day she came home and she said, dad, my teacher used this weird thing. She called it AI. She didn't know the name. It was ChatGPT. But I said, really? Tell me about what happened. She said, well, she said, we gave it a prompt. And, uh, and I love that she used this language, by the way, because this is good. She's using the actual proper terms. We gave it a prompt. It was something like a child took a trip to a museum and got hurt tell a story and something like that. And so it spit out a little story and I go, okay, interesting. Now, what did you think? She goes, well, the story was okay, but the teacher said, what can we do to make the story better? So then they wrote it out and they actually went through and edited the story that was generated and said, let's use some more colorful language. Let's use better descriptive words here when it comes to talking about the story and then look at how it phrased some of these things. And so for her, she's like, it wasn't that it was replacing writing. It was basically saying, this is going to make writing even better. Wow. I love that example. That is wonderful. Yeah. I will tell you that I, this true story. So last week I was at a conference with a bunch of tech leaders and someone was talking talking about the marriage of technology and curriculum, the marriage of technology and literacy. And so I kept hearing the word marriage. And so I decided to do something on this. And I wrote this out. Basically, what I did is I plugged into ChatGPT. I said, tell me wedding vows. I want you to write wedding vows of two technology leaders, but I want it to be done in the prose of Shakespeare. And it did. And it generated out. I'll read you just the first <laughs> paragraph because it's four paragraphs. But the first paragraph was to thee, my dearest love, I pledge my code and vow to keep thy system free from load. As thou art all mine algorithms combined, so will I be the source of thy peace of mind. And so, like, I mean, it's not bad. <laughs> I mean, it's not great, but it's not bad. Not I mean, bad, you know, the rhyme and all that. Yeah, um, yeah. So, I mean, those kind of things, again, I think we're just starting to see the beginning of it. So, again, when it comes back to anything that's new, once we've deciphered it and said, is it good or bad for kids? Let's talk about how can we utilize it to help kids move along. So in my case with ChatGPT uh, specifically, I think for a student that's struggling, it's a great prompter. You have to be good at how you're putting in those prompts. When Google first came out, it came down to like, how are you choosing your search terms? And, you know, did you have an and or an or, or quotation marks around your search? It was called the Boolean searching engine back then. Same thing with this. It's going to be how well can you define your prompts? How critically can you think as a student to get the output that you actually want? That's some next level thinking there. And I think that's nothing to be afraid of. I think it's something to embrace. Yeah, I like that idea, too, of making sure when we talk about AI, there are so many categories and this type that's generating responses. I love that example of the teacher using it as a starting point and then talking about how can we use more expressive vocabulary? How can we look at the sentence structure? Because I think everybody jumps right toward a student putting in a prompt and then turning yeah. in an essay and the plagiarism and all of that. So I think you've given us a lot of interesting things to think about, but making sure that we're clarifying because there are a lot of great uses of AI in terms of, again, whether it's adaptive assessments or things like that. So, and where we might see the chat GPT or its next iteration as we continue to learn from it. So I think those are all good and bad potential directions this sure. could go, but with all technology, I think it's important to think about something that I know you've also talked about, which is the importance of failure with technology and learning from it. And there's been a lot of talk as well about the idea of growth mindset. Can you speak a little bit how you've seen schools set up a system where it's actually not only safe to fail, 
but encourages risk or failure for their teachers and also their students, especially when it comes to technology. Sure. And I think anybody who's had any interactions with technology knows that technology is not 100% all the time. It fails quite often. In fact, anybody who's like me, I'm kind of knee deep in it. I fail pretty much every day, if not every day, every hour, maybe (laughs) at some times where something crashes and doesn't work and it's frustrating at times. So to me, that was kind of a launching point for what I've started writing about with the book Ready, Set, Fail, which is looking at schools and the structures and systems we have in place. Schools exist primarily now as a place of teaching compliance and conformity, meaning you're going to do these things in this step and these are, and you're gonna be looking over your shoulder. My kids do this all the time. They're like, dad, am I doing this right? Am I doing this right? Like, it's not about checking for that compliance. Like, are you doing it correctly? Instead, I want you to feel comfortable where you can try something different, even if it's way out there, and then say, oh, how can I tie this into what I'm actually trying to learn? So for me, that was kind of the impetus for writing about it. And, and it's been part of my ethos for a long time with technology, too, is like we have to encourage or create spaces where students are comfortable taking risks and failing. Now, this isn't I'm not going to rewrite curriculum. I'm not going to change grading practices or state testing, because let's be honest, those are mountains that are hard to move. However, with some small tweaks in the schools where I see doing it really well, to get back to your question, they're using just different questions. The way you ask questions in your classroom, it can be something as simple as, instead of me showing you, okay, you're going to use this tool today, you're going to go here and then click here and then click here. Instead, you throw it on the screen and go, huh, this is an interesting tool. I wonder, how, how do we add text to this? How do we how do we record on this? What do y'all think? You're just asking questions. And this is me kids as young as five years old, all the way to high school, have them kind of lean into it and help you through it, almost acting like you don't know what you're doing, which seems kind of weird. Teachers kind of, again, like we feel like we need to be the sole answer of all information. So to give them that opportunity to kind of lean in and do that. And one particular school that I'll point out that did this really well is there was a school in Southern Illinois where the principal was a middle school. And they were really struggling with innovation and kind of the idea that we needed to try different things in our classroom. So what this principal did is she did a very low-tech thing. She took three different colored folders, essentially green, yellow, and red. And she used these little magnetic clips outside their door. And she goes, teachers, here's what I want. I want you to model the fact that you're trying something different in these ways. If the folder is green outside your door, that means everything's kind of normal, nothing crazy going on in here. Come on in, business as usual, but you're welcome to come into my classroom and see what's happening. If the folder is red, That means that maybe you're doing some sort of testing or something like that where you can't have visitors. So it's just nothing to see here, move along, you know, that so to speak. But if the folder is yellow, I want you to put that out there. And that means that essentially you're welcome to come into my classroom. However, know that we're trying something different. We're trying something new. It may be messy. It may be loud. It may not be what you would consider a quote unquote traditional classroom environment because we're trying a new thing. And usually that new thing involves technology, not always, but sometimes. And so when I asked the principal, I said, that's a great idea, because visually she could see walking up and down the halls, green, yellow, red. I asked her, I was like, was your goal to see green everywhere? And she said, no, actually, she liked days where there's a mix of green and yellow because it showed that her staff were trying new things. And there's two byproducts as a result of this. One was that the teachers right next door to each other, they're teaching the exact same subject, would look at each other and one would have green and one would have yellow. And they're like, why is there's yellow? It's like, oh, I'm trying this new tool today. And we're going to use it with our classroom. And so all of a sudden, they're having those conversations that they weren't having before. But the teachers aren't the only ones that see it. Who else sees the folders? The students start to see the folders. And they're like, right. teacher, why is your folder always red? Why don't you want anyone to come inside your classroom? And like, they got to know what this was about because it was part of the culture of the building. It was basically like, we want to encourage this. 
And so students knew that when they walked into a yellow room, that maybe they're going to try something different that they hadn't tried before. Maybe it wasn't going to be like the typical school day for them. And so it also increased that kind of their uptick of engagement and excitement when it came to school, so much so that the kids were really kind of excited and eager to run into those yellow folder rooms versus the red room where they're like, well, I'm just going to, this is my normal, typical, okay, here's the teacher that's always on red. But right. I love that idea. Again, a very visual, simple, not a high-tech thing, but just a way of encouraging it and then visually encouraging that across our building. Yeah, I love that idea as well, because like you said, the teachers, I mean, because some of our best mentors are peers next door, right? When I first started teaching, there were two teachers, one across the hall and one next door that had been teaching first grade for 25 years and like how to to learn from them. But could they learn from me too, right? And so if teachers see that yellow and then the the students not only are they excited about seeing the yellow, but then they know they're safe to try things and maybe get it wrong. And it's just such a huge shout out to that principal because it usually starts with strong leadership around this. And I had a principal when I was working at FCRR that said, what gets inspected gets respected. And there's this, this idea that the principal by having them put out the red, yellow, green, knew it was something that was important to the principal. So the teachers are more likely to be engaged. And also the teachers understand that they can be safe to try new things and and risk. So I love that. Thanks for sharing that really practical, low tech, right? Low cost. You could even use a chip clip and put the, the red, yellow, green outside your room. So I love that. Thank you so much. And thank you for encouraging us, even with technology, to embrace that growth mindset and taking risks and learning from those opportunities. I really, really appreciate it. And I thank you so much for your time today, Carl. Thank you, Liz. Appreciate being on the show. Thank you to all our listeners for joining Carl and I today for this conversation. And you can Continue to join the conversation on Twitter by following Carl at Mr. Hooker, Mr. Hooker, and myself at Liz C. Brooke. Thanks so much. Love this episode of the All for Literacy podcast? Subscribe, leave a review, and join the literacy conversation. 